The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, I need you to uh, just, um, and I know, I know I have your attention already and I'm grateful for that, but in this room, let me set this as a foundation, in, in this room right now, there is no uh, place for guilt, fear, or shame in those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. There is no room in the life of the church for guilt, fear, and shame. And we know that because we know that the blood of Jesus Christ covers and cleanses these three wounds that are the result of sin in our lives. And I've set that foundation. I need us to hear that. No place for guilt, fear, or shame. I need you to hear that because of what we're going to be talking about today. Because this uh, topic is likely to cause hurt, um, to inflict pain, possibly making you feel guilt or fear or shame over past decisions that either you made or someone made for you or past circumstances that you went through. Uh, today's topic may open old wounds. It may cause pain in fresh ones. Because in Luke 16, 18, uh, Jesus raises the topic of divorce. And obviously that's a painful topic to many and I want to speak specifically to those for whom this might be painful. I want to speak directly to you for a moment about the guilt, fear, and shame. Because at any point in this message, if the evil one has you sinking in your chair because of those wounds of sin, I want you to say to him, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You just tell him that. And you regain your footing in Christ as we talk about this painful and difficult topic. Jesus, we know, is all about fresh starts and new beginnings and new life. That's, that's his message. That's what he came to this earth to do, to give his life so that we could have new life in him. And we mean to live out that new life in full. So the purpose of this message, having said that, the purpose of this message is to establish first that our authority is the word of God. Amen? Amen. That our authority is the word of God and then having uh, set that foundation to lay out in brief because it's only one message and it's a big topic, but to lay out in brief the biblical teaching on uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So let's read the text together. We're in Luke 16. We're just going to read 14 through 18, and then I'm going to pray. So Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he, Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for, easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to be void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. God, again, as we, uh, as we often uh, pray, uh, please send your Holy Spirit now uh, to fill me, to fill this place, to fill these people, that uh, this message would be proclaimed and received in and by the Holy Spirit that we would hear and receive the truth we need to hear and the grace that we need to receive in light of this truth. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being with us in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. 
Amen. All right, let's, um, let's start with a question. It's really a two-part question. We'll look at each part in turn. Uh, am I driven by self-interest in my marriage? Am I driven by self-interest in my marriage? Uh, Jesus coming off his comments about money in the first part of chapter 16. You remember we ended in chapter uh, 16 verse 13 where he uh, puts it before us. You cannot, cannot serve God and money. Uh, you're either going to be enslaved to one and, um, and, and love the other or, or, or vice versa. It's, it's one or the other. It's not both. And so we come off of him saying that, and Jesus kind of goes after the religious leaders, not before they go after him, though, and he identifies them as the very ones who have a small g God of money as opposed to being, even though they're the religious leaders of Israel, instead of having God as their God. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. They come after him, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus was teaching about this radical Christian life, and they ridicule him. They persecute him in the moment. They have no time for what he's saying because they're driven by self-interest, and he's not interested in their self-interest. So they ridiculed him, and he said to them, calls them out, you are those who, notice, justify yourselves before men. Religious leaders, like so many today, and again, whenever we see these religious leaders, we want to be inserting ourselves in there to see, is this, is this a message for us, Jesus? Are you actually speaking to me here? Don't we fight this just in the same way they do? This self-interest? Aren't we just as self-interested? Aren't we just as much for ourselves and what would make our lives comfortable and what best serves me? feel like I'm making a bit of a confession here because, um, because in, my, in my flesh, even though I've been walking with Jesus a long time, in my flesh, I still feel like on any given day, this is the way I would prefer my life to go. I just would prefer it to go the way I want it to go. I would prefer that people would serve me. I would prefer that my life be smooth and wonderful. I would, I would prefer, just prefer all of that, that life was awesome for me. And that people would see that and listen to me and am I confessing that for you too? Isn't that where we all kind of struggle here? This is the battle. Like so, like these religious, religious leaders, so many today have only their own self-interest in mind. For these religious leaders, their gods were money and power, and they worked hard to notice, justify themselves before men. But look, God knows their hearts. You can fool the people around you for a while, but you're never fooling God. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows it to be what it is. He knew what motivated them. He knew what drove them to do what they did. It was self-interest. Now, this is a message on divorce, and we're going to lay a foundation for marriage first. We're going to kind of move through what the Bible teaches about marriage to get to this topic of divorce and see what we believe about that from the Scriptures. But... As we think about this point, am I driven by self-interest in marriage? Very simply, this is what derails marriages. It's when one spouse puts their interest above the other. That's what kills marriages. And I, I was studying this and I was thinking in my own mind, is there another way that marriages fall apart? I mean, I know there's lots of details and lots of specifics and marriages fall apart for different reasons. But if you bring it all the way back to the beginning, I'm trying to think of an example where a marriage didn't fall apart because of self-interest. I'm, I'm thinking they all do. This is where every single Marriage disruption starts. One spouse or two think they're the most important person in the marriage. That their needs should be served above all. 
that their self-interest is more important than that of their spouse. Believing that what's best is what's best for me. And I hope you can see how that's toxic to a marriage. Am I driven by self-interest? Or, second part of the question, am I under, am I under the authority of God's word? This is the key, in fact, to a healthy marriage. And, and you know, I would hope that you come here um, expecting every single message that, that's preached here to be relevant to you. I hope I hope you come here expecting that. I hope to hear from God today. I hope to hear something that I can apply in my life. But if you want to make a message on divorce irrelevant to you, and I would hope that a message on divorce is irrelevant to you, but if you want that to be true, the way to get that is to get under the authority of God's word, to believe what the Bible says about marriage, about being a husband, about being a wife, and then get that working in your life. So after calling out the religious leaders for their self-interest, Jesus says this. Now he's going to take them into a discussion about the Bible itself. Okay, this is what he says in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Kind of seems to me when I read that in the ESV, there's like a word missing. Doesn't it seem that way to you? And uh, the New American Standard Bible and both the NIV put a word in, in there to help us understand it. I mean, I think it's helpful. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And, um, and so when we have that, we have a great understanding. So we, uh, John here is John the Baptist. And, and what Jesus is doing is he's, if you often wonder where does the Old Testament end, where does the New Testament begin? And this is exactly where it ends and begins. This is where Jesus, he's drawing the line. He's saying, John the Baptist, in essence, was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was proclaiming the message of the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. But at that moment that Jesus went out to the Judean wilderness, and he went down to the Jordan River, and he saw John the Baptist, and he was baptized by him, and he came up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and he began his public ministry. That's the line between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant or the new testament. That's where the line is. And Jesus is drawing it for us right here. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, were proclaimed until John. And the Old Testament was fulfilled. Not abolished. Jesus talks about that elsewhere. Not abolished, but fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. And so at his coming, now they're fulfilled. Jesus goes on, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. We have a new understanding of all of this, a greater understanding, a greater revelation of what God is saying to us, and this revelation is in his son, Jesus Christ. And then this difficult to translate phrase, everyone, everyone forces his way into it. Uh, the best way to understand is uh, that everyone is being urged or pressed to believe this gospel. Jesus was out there traveling around earnestly uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to get people to believe it. It was that important. Then verse 17 says this, look, uh, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What Jesus is doing here is in the face of these self-interested leaders, he's, he's elevating the word of God because they had trouble with the authority of this book. And we're gonna see that. And so he's elevating the word of God. I wonder how, how the word of God is elevated. Is it the final authority in our own lives? In fact, could you take the word of God right now and just hold it up? Just hold it up. Just hold it up. Even if you have one of those electronic Bibles, just hold it up. If it's on your phone, just hold it up. This is the word of God. doesn't matter by what means it comes to us. It's the word of God, right? We have the word of God. We want to elevate it in our lives, because the word of God isn't going anywhere. People fail. Correct? People fail. And what Jesus says here is, in fact, heaven and earth could fail. 
The entire universe could be wiped out and disappeared. And the word of God will still stand. Because it's in our God. It's his word. The word of God isn't going anywhere. We, we still have the word of God no matter what. And if you want something solid to build your marriage on, then this is it. We want to make sure our marriages are going to last. If we want to make sure our marriages are going to be great, then they need to be founded on the word of God. We know how sin wars against our marriages at every turn. We know how the culture itself assaults the marriage union. Then why would we not choose the solid foundation of the word of God upon which to build these relationships? So am I driven by self-interest? Or have I put myself under the authority of God's word? If you're here saying, yes, that's what I want for my marriage, even if I have a marriage now or if I'm going to be married someday, I, this is where I want to be. I want to have it as my authority and when I get to that place, when I get to that place of submission to God's word, then, notice this next, I will do two things. I will, first of all, commit to God's intent for marriage. I'm going to commit to that and I'm going to submit to God's consent, very carefully chosen words, I'm going to submit to God's consent for divorce. Now what Jesus does here in verse 18 is he's using an example. It's not intended in chapter 16 of Luke's gospel to be a full exploration. Obviously, it's just really a couple of lines. It's not intended to be a full understanding of divorce even, let alone marriage. He's using an example of the religious leaders being more committed to self-interest than they are to the authority of God's word. So he's just throwing this out as an example. In fact, if you read through the entirety of Luke 16, you kind of get the feeling that verse 18 doesn't even really belong in this chapter. It seems so out of place. In the early part of uh, chapter 16, we had this uh, whole thing about money and, and, the, um, and, and this servant, and, and we learned a pile of principles about finances. In the latter part of chapter 16, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and those two things really seem to go together well. And then right here in the middle, you just have this one verse about divorce, he, Jesus is using it as an illustration of what's going on in their hearts. Again, that they were driven by self-interest and not driven by the authority of God's word. So here's what he says. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. You see, what was going on is he's, he's, he's poking the religious leaders right now. Because in that culture at that time, these men who were religious leaders had this habit of justifying themselves based on, on their own self-interest around this issue of marriage. So if they married a woman and then they didn't especially like the way she cooked or, or the way she looked or the way she cared for the house, if they didn't especially like these things, they would divorce her. Just divorce her. And it was creating a whole strata of their of their society where there were these women who were now divorced and were marginalized within their culture now now is it starting to sound a little bit more like it fits in the middle of luke's gospel because now we're dealing with the vulnerable and the weak and the marginalized and those who are victims of a system and so jesus is challenging and he's saying if you divorce your wife and you marry another now he uses the magic word. You committed adultery because in their minds, they're justifying themselves. They, they feel like they haven't because they've justified their divorce. Then he flips it around. And if you marry a woman divorced from her husband, okay, she's committing adultery. You're, you're just causing everybody to sin because there were no biblical grounds for these divorces. So it would just seem that first century Israel was just as messed up on marriage and divorce as we are today. 
these male religious leaders had used it to suppress women. And what Jesus is going to say next about divorce, we need to hear this, what he says next about divorce is to protect women in that day. It was to protect women from further victimization. And again, that's how we see it fits so well with Luke's gospel and with everything Jesus is saying about those who are on the margins of society. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at, kind of use this as a starting point. I realize it's just an example of everything else Jesus is saying about authority, but since he's raised the topic and since our elders have been talking about this recently, we're going to take this opportunity to kind of build our understanding of marriage and divorce and remarriage from that. And that's going to require us to go to other relevant scriptures to build this biblical understanding. And so let's look at this first, commit to God's intent for marriage. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. If you want to turn there, Matthew 19, we're going to commit to God's intent for marriage. Verses will be on the screen as well. Matthew 19, three to six. Let's start there. Pages turning, pages turning, pages turning. There? Okay, beginning at verse three, some Pharisees come up to him, they test him by asking a question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read? Read what? Read what? Read the Bible? (laughs) Have you read the Bible? They're religious leaders. Yes, they've read the Bible. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's going to begin to quote out of Genesis. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, right out of the Bible, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, you can see up on the screen, I've underlined some key phrases that will show us God's intent. Let's uh, look at these. I'm going to give you four. God's intent for marriage. Marriage is to be, first of all, heterosexual. We're not going to deal with any of these in any detail. You know that I have a four-part series from several years ago where we dealt with the same-sex question. But... um, a marriage is to be heterosexual, Matthew 19, 4, and from Genesis, male and female. They were made male and female. They're, they're to complement each other. Uh, that's the design for marriage. Uh, secondly, a marriage is to be monogamous. A man shall leave his father and mother and uh, cling to or hold fast, cleave to his wife. That's it, just the two of them. It's monogamous. Uh, thirdly, a marriage is to be lifelong. We read here as well that what God has joined together, let not man separate. We make vows. The covenant is for a lifetime till death do us part. And so those uh, three foundations for marriage, we see all of them. That's what it's to be. That's what God has established, all coming out of Matthew uh, 19. And then a fourth one that comes from 2 Corinthians six fourteen. marriage is to be within the faith. And so... Um, If you're a believer, young men and women in the room who are not married yet, if you are a believer, if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ, then then, then you're looking for another believer to marry. Okay, it's it's not, it's uh, it's christianmingle.com, not match.com. Okay, more Christian mingle, (laughs) less match.com. Okay, we're looking... Within the faith, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light uh, with darkness. So marriage is to be heterosexual, monogamous within, um, sorry, lifelong and within the faith. That's the foundation for marriage as we believe about it. But then we want to ask ourselves the question, what happens within the marriage? If that's the foundation, then it's also very important that we commit to God's intent on how we conduct ourselves within the marriage. And and to that, I'm going to add some instructions here without going into them at all, because time prevents us from actually going into these passages. But the references are going to be behind me. You should jot these down. If you want to know men and women, husbands and wives, how you're to conduct yourself in the marriage, here's some great passages. Ephesians 5 
uh, beginning at 21 through 33, speak to the husband and wife roles in marriage. If you uh, look at Colossians 3, 18 to 19, it's like a precis of what you see in Ephesians 5. And then, of course, uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. And what you're going to find when you read those passages and, and read the part that's relevant to you. If you're a wife, read the wife parts. If you're a husband, read the husband parts. And what you're going to find is this. There's no room for self-interest. When you get under the authority of God's word and you read the part that you're supposed to be doing without reading the other part, you're going to see that it's 100% about the other person. No room for self-interest. To keep your marriage strong, you need only listen to what Jesus has been saying throughout the gospel. The one word that keeps coming up over and over again because when you read these conduct passages about how we're supposed to be the best husbands and wives we can possibly be, what you're going to find is that the standard in, in some cases seems impossibly high. And so there's going to be stumbles and there's going to be falls and there's going to be mistakes and there's going to be tensions and there's going to be times when it's really difficult and the one word the message that keeps coming back over and over again in Jesus preaching is repent when you mess up on what it means to be a good husband get before your wife and repent agree with God what God said about being a husband and and ask her to forgive you do it his way. Wives, when you're not getting it done, as you ought to get it done, when you're not respecting your husband the way you ought to respect him, agree with God about that. Repent to God and repent to your husband. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. And forgiveness starts when we're repentant, regularly repentant towards one another. And the only thing that stands in the way of you repenting toward your spouse is self-interest. How is that not, how is that word repent not the best advice you're ever going to get with regard to marriage? Because if a husband and wife get this, they're saying there's no stopping that marriage. There's no stopping it. It will be awesome. It will be phenomenal. It will last a lifetime. It will please God and it will bless others. But what about when a marriage does get stopped? Well, in the, these cases then, we need to submit to God's consent for divorce. Now, first let me say that no one should be quick to claim I have grounds for divorce. I have grounds for divorce. No one should be quick to claim that. Because our default setting as the followers of Jesus Christ should be to find a way to make it work. If at all possible. Because grace and forgiveness are defining characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's the way that God treats us. And so, we should understand that divorce is never God's first choice and it should never be our first choice. We shouldn't be quick to run to it. Okay, back to Matthew 19. Submit to God's consent for divorce. Matthew 19, 7, the Pharisees said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, they, they kind of get the scriptures wrong here, again, because they've twisted it in their own minds to serve their own self-interest. They've, they've got it wrong here. And, and we're not left in a place where we have to make up anything on our own. God's word has instructed us, but the, the Pharisees here are making stuff up, twisting the scriptures because, listen, the way they asked the question, we have to understand there was no command to divorce. No command, not in the Bible. And so Jesus said to them, verse 8 now, look, because of your hardness of heart, we'll come back to that in a minute, Moses, what's the word? Allowed, allowed, not commanded, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
in the creation of marriage, in the institution of marriage, as God established it, that was never God's intention. From the beginning, it was not so. But God allowed it. He consented to it. And notice, notice why. I said we'd come back to this phrase. Why, why did he allow it? Because of the, the hardness of our hearts. I don't know how many times I pray this just in my time with the Lord. God, just keep my heart soft. Just keep it soft. So easy to let our hearts get hardened. Because we are rebellious people. We are a sinful and we are given to self-interest. Sin has messed up the perfection of the marriage union. And God's response, listen now, listen to this. God's response is he allows us to divorce when the marriage becomes so tainted by our sin that there's no other way forward. Let me say that again. God allows us to divorce when the marriage becomes so tainted by our sin that there's no other way forward. See, God wants us to live in the freedom that he has given us through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and through the new life. He died for our sins in order to give us freedom so that we don't have to live under the bondage of sin any longer. We are freed or we are allowed in this case because God wants us to live in freedom. We're allowed to take this less than ideal option in certain cases in response to the unrepentance that led to the marriage ending. God wants us to live in freedom. So when does God consent? Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, remember he's addressing the fact that they're just divorcing at will. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, in verse 18, Jesus didn't give us the exceptions that he gives in Matthew 19. And the reason why he didn't give us the exceptions is because that wasn't his point. It, again, divorce was just being used as an example of how their hearts were more about their own thing than about the, the word of God. It, the, the topic of this message is much more about the authority of the word in our lives than about divorce in Luke 16. So that's why he doesn't include it there. But here in Matthew 19, he builds a much fuller argument. And, and as we gain this fuller understanding of divorce, we actually will find that there are three biblical grounds for divorce. The first one is the one we see right here in Matthew 19, adultery or sexual immorality. I had sexual immortality here in my notes, but I think that's a Mormon thing, actually. <laughs> I changed it. Se sexual immorality or adultery. Um, this covers a broad scope of sexual sin. And so Jesus mentions adultery here because that's what's mentioned in the Ten Commandments as the violation of our relationship with God. Um, but um, but it, to, to commit the adultery, the, the, the broad scope of how you do that is this word sexual immorality and it covers, it covers everything. Okay, we, we get an understanding here that if you're seeking satisfaction, sexual satisfaction in some way outside of normal sexual relationships with your spouse, that that would be possible grounds for divorce. So it's a, it's a broad term. So that's the first grounds for divorce. Here's the second one. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, I already said that a, a believer shouldn't marry an unbeliever. This is a different situation. This is where in the first century when the church and the gospel were just being preached, you had two unbelievers um, who come under the hearing of the gospel, they're already married, they're unbelievers, but one of them becomes a believer and now you have a believer and an unbeliever married together. So in that sense, they're unequally yoked. But Paul addresses that and says, look, if the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage, you don't, you don't go uh, divorcing for that, even though the unequal yoking is not God's ideal. 
And so this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 12, uh, 13, and then verse 15. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, uh, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And you get a sense of God's heart here. And so the, the believer who was abandoned by the unbeliever would not only be free of the marriage, but would be free uh, to remarry, in this case, a biblical grounds for divorce. And um, so we have adultery or sexual immorality, uh, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, and then this third one, abuse. Now, some uh, rather rigid believers would think that a spouse has to put up with whatever their husband or wife throws at them, that a lifelong vow would bind a man or a woman even to abusive situations. But, um, but abuse in a marriage is a violation, really, of the greater ethic of Scripture to protect the vulnerable. And I find the notion that we would bind someone into an abusive relationship, I, I find that to be evil, to be honest with you. If, as most often the case, if I could speak of it this way, the husband is abusive to his wife, that is what is most common. And by abuse, I mean verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse. And of course, emotional abuse is wrapped up in all of those. We're not leaving anything out here. Then really, if he is abusive toward her, he has already broken his vows. There are no vows and there is no marriage because he's ignored everything the Bible says about being a husband. In fact, to go back to a couple of those verses I gave you the references on earlier, to, to simply look at Ephesians 5, uh, 25, for example. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You look at these two verses and you realize that a husband who's abusing his wife is not living with his wife in an understanding way. That he's not honoring her in any way. That a husband who's abusing his wife is not loving his wife as Christ loves the church. The way Christ loved the church was that he gave himself thought so little of his own self-interest that he gave his life sacrificially on the cross. Husbands, that's the standard. And a man who's abusing his wife is so far from the standard, I get that the standard's so high that I'm not going to achieve it. No man in this room's actually going to ever achieve that. But God help us to at least get close, at least be trying, at least be working on it. A man who's abusing his wife, not even close, not even in the ball game. He's ignored everything of what it means to be a godly husband. Abuse of any kind is a gross violation of the command to live with in an understanding way and to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And the, the esteem that the Bible places on marriage, listen, this, this might be counterintuitive, but the, but the esteem that God and the Bible puts on marriage means that divorce is sometimes necessary for us to raise the value of marriage where it ought to be. Some marriages shouldn't continue if we really believe in marriage. And where a man abuses a woman, there is no marriage. And pretending that there is out of some misguided sense of obligation is something that not even God does. Because he permitted divorce, we should too. Gary Thomas, who teaches on this topic of marriage, said, if the cost of saving a marriage is destroying a woman, the cost is too high. God loves people more than he loves institutions. Now, a caution. God consents to, but does not command. He consents to, allows, but does not require. And if we're to reflect God's heart as best we can, we should see consistent 
unrepentant behavior before pursuing divorce. Some spouses are simply too quick to jump ship at the slightest indiscretions, and marriage shouldn't be treated so lightly. Inasmuch as the adulterer treats marriage with contempt, that's obvious. So does the spouse who's prepared to end the marriage without displaying any grace or any forgiveness or for watching for the fruit of repentance in any measure in his or her spouse. There needs to be much grace for one another. And I do hope all of that is clear as we kind of lay down this biblical understanding of marriage. I have really several more bullets I just want to share with you that are going to hopefully bring even more clarity to this for us under a few more topics. I'm going to give you five, very quickly, five bullets here. Hopefully you've left yourself a little bit of note-taking space. The first I would like to address is cohabitation. Uh, common law relationships, living together, whatever you want to call it, it's not marriage and it's not biblical. Any sexual relationships outside of marriage, outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage relationships are unsanctioned by God. And... Um, I realize that in saying all of that, no sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage, don't live together. I realize that in saying that and laying that down as a teaching and a, and a value of our church, I, I realize that that just makes us aliens. It, we might as well be dropped here from another planet. I get it. But are we driven by self-interest? It's cheaper to live together. We love each other anyway. Are we driven by self-interest or are we driven by the authority of God's word? And from the Institute of Marriage and Family Canada, I would just give this as a warning. Relationships that start with cohabitation are twice as likely to dissolve as those that start with marriage. Cohabitation relationships are characterized by instability, less relational interaction, and less happiness. So why would we? It just doesn't even make sense. Here's a second one, second bullet here. Uh, the word is separation. And uh, a separation, a trial separation, a marital separation may be valuable as a means of getting clarity. The goal should be restoration if there are no complicating issues such as abuse. If there's abuse in the home and a spouse is in any kind of danger at all, then, um, then we're not looking to reconcile that or put that back together. We're looking at, to protect the vulnerable, amen? Always looking to protect the vulnerable. But separation can be a helpful step in the process of getting to a divorce or of reconciliation. Um, separation agreements should be well-defined, should be worked out with counsel, should never be uh, decided in the heat of the moment, and emotion should be taken out of it as much as possible, and that's why counsel should be sought. Third, I put the, the phrase no grounds for this one. If a believing couple, two people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, allow their marriage to end and there are no biblical grounds, the biblical grounds we've talked about here, there's no adultery or sexual immorality, there's, there's no abandonment, obviously, of an unbelieving spouse here because both are professing and there's no abuse going on, if there's no biblical grounds and they separate and they divorce, then both must remain single because there's no biblical grounds for the divorce there's no way either could ever remarry. And the point there is get back together. Figure out how to repent and get that marriage back together. Fourth, unbiblical marriage. If you're in what would be considered an unbiblical marriage, this would be um, married again, married for a second or third time when there were no biblical grounds for the previous divorce. Okay, so that's what we would call an on biblical marriage, I would just say that there is healing and forgiveness uh, for these things, that no one should be enslaved. Everything I said off the top, the guilt, fear, and shame, that's the work of the evil one. If you genuinely love Jesus Christ, you should not be enslaved to past decisions. You should uh, seek counsel for how to um, best work uh, this thing out. Uh, to perhaps reconcile the decisions you made and get to a good place. And, and I'll just tell you, it's going to take repentance. Even though we can't undo some of the things that were done, 
It's still gonna take an attitude of repentance to come and say with your mouth, I was wrong for this. And um, it has been gratifying at times to have people that we have had to, as elders, discipline in the past for decisions around marriage, to have some of those people come back and sit with us and just say, um, what you were trying to guide us in was correct. We made poor decisions. We're coming to admit that now to agree with God and to confess that what we did was wrong. Would you forgive us? And we're able to pray with them and just make sure that people are living in freedom, amen? It's an awesome thing. All right, one final bullet here is um, the word is remarriage. And I've spoken to this a couple times already, um, but now to bring a little bit more clarity to it. Uh, divorce comes with consequences, obviously. And I want to speak for a moment about the innocent party and the guilty party in a marriage. But when I use the word innocent party, I recognize that no one's innocent. No one's innocent. And some people in this room, you're part of our soul care ministry and you've done counseling, you've been small group leaders and you've intervened in situations. And when you begin to unpack and unravel what's going on in a marriage, you just find out nobody's innocent. But for the purposes of what we're talking about here, innocent and guilty, I would just say that, that when I'm referring to the innocent party, it is the person who is less guilty of what has happened and has not violated their marriage vows. And when I speak of the guilty person, I'm speaking of the one who more obviously bears responsibility for the dissolution of the marriage and did violate their marriage vows. So in the case of adultery, if we could just use that one, the innocent person is the person who didn't commit adultery and the guilty person is the one who did and who violated their marriage vows. And so that's to bring clarity to those two phrases. So the innocent party, the one who did not violate their vows, is free to remarry if there are biblical grounds for the divorce. Again, adultery, sexual immorality, abandonment, or abuse. The guilty party, listen now, the one who did commit adultery, is only free to remarry if the innocent party has remarried. That's the only thing that'll free them to remarry. Otherwise, the guilty party must remain single. Now again, there's healing and there's forgiveness for all of this, for all of those who caused a divorce, but the consequences of the decisions that were made and the violation of the vows, those consequences cannot be ignored. And all of this assumes Everything we're talking about assumes we're dealing with people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ and who are living with an attitude of repentance, who are wanting to get under the authority of God's word and find healing for all of these things. And then I'll say just one final thing. If an innocent party in a marriage breakup chooses to remain single in order to wait for the guilty party even an unrepentant guilty party who's still off committing adultery and violating their vows. If the innocent party chooses to remain single, even for a lifetime, that seems to me to be a very noble and high calling and one that displays the grace of God in an extraordinary way, that they would wait and wait and wait for their spouse. Not everybody would be called to that, but some are. I know some who are. And it's an awesome thing to see. Well, I know, having shared all of that, this is, this is a hard word uh, for many. Um, some people treat all of this more cut and dry than it really is, and every case needs to be judged on its own merits, with these principles being the foundation of it all. And we can't ever tip the scales one way or another when it comes to the truth and the grace of this. It must be truth and grace in full as we walk through these issues together. The truth of what God has told us about divorce and the grace that comes from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so that we would no longer, as Romans 6 says, no longer be enslaved to sin. And that's the heart of God. That's the heart of our elders and our pastors as we bring uh, this to you. And so we're gonna conclude our time together. We have uh, some time left and we wanted to conclude this way because we wanna help people get to a place of freedom, of healing and of forgiveness around all of these issues. And it's very likely as we, as we get together that, that people are coming from very different places and different experiences with this and there is a lot of pain and hurt in the room around all of this. So I'm gonna invite some of our leaders to come up to the front right now and to stand here and be prepared to pray with you. Perhaps 
Perhaps you're the child of divorce, your parents got divorced, and you're still bearing the weight of it and having to navigate the difficult relationships that that has caused. You haven't quite gotten to the place of forgiveness or letting it go. Maybe you're sitting here and you're the one who caused a divorce. And you've never really reconciled that. This is the way it goes a lot of the time. You're a believer, you love Jesus, your marriage fell apart. Maybe it's because of you and you were at a different church and they had to speak to you about it and you didn't want to stay there or you couldn't stay there, so you came here. Come to a larger church, you melt into the crowd, you hope no one ever asks. But you've never actually reconciled it. And what we want to do is, uh, there's no condemnation here. What we want to help you do is reconcile that. We want you to get right with God. We want you to say it with your lips. I was wrong for this. I know I can't go back and undo it all, but I was wrong to just confess that to a leader and then to have them pray for you, that you would find the relief and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Maybe you're the one who is the innocent party. Maybe you've never actually just even confessed your part in driving your spouse to do what they did, if that's the case. Maybe you're not in a place where you've even forgiven them yet. Maybe you're newly married, or soon to be married. And this message is like a shot across your bow. You don't want to go down this road. You want to live the first part of this message, God's intent for marriage, without ever getting to the place where the last half of the message is even relevant to you. And you would just want to come up and meet with one of our leaders and say, we're going to be married or we've just been married and would you pray for us and we never get here? Maybe you're here and you're married and this might be even the hardest one. Maybe you're here together and this message has been uncomfortable start to finish because your marriage isn't in a great place and it's hanging by a thread and you're not sure it's going to make another year. And maybe the hardest thing to do right now would be to take hands with your spouse and to walk up here to the front to one of these leaders and to say, would you pray for us? We're not in a great place. There's no room here for guilt, fear, and shame. Do not, do not succumb to the shame to say, I can't get up in front of a bunch of people and make that walk. You need to. This is a safe place. These are the followers of Jesus Christ. Not a person in the room doesn't need his grace. Not, not a person in the room doesn't have something they're working on. If that's your thing, great. I got something different. But we're all just trying to grind it out for Jesus. We're all just trying to make it to the finish line. We're all so desperately in need. Are we? I would plead with you to come get prayer. So leaders, you come right now. Jordan's just going to play throughout this time and there's really no other response other than what I've said. Just don't even hesitate. As these leaders come, you come up right now and come and get prayer and say, I need it right now. Whatever your concern is around the things that we've talked about here today. And for those of you who don't feel the need to come, would you just stay right where you are and pray? Would you even get together with somebody else around you and just say, we could pray. We all have a vested interest in, in healthy marriages, don't we? We all need healthy marriages. So we just even pray where you are. Let's pray. You come right now.
please don't hesitate if if you need prayer don't leave this place not taking advantage of those who would pray for you Father thank you for your abundant grace thank you that Jesus modeled for us so well and showed us the way to care for the those who are hurting the broken that you gave us a way forward through the mess of our own sin that you want us to live in freedom you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free I thank you for that, God. I thank you for how liberating it is to be able to come to you with a simple confession. It's an admission that we did it our own way and not your way. And to have you welcome us and forgive us. I pray, God, that you would continue to make our hearts soft. Make us into the people you want us to be. Make us into a church that's got an open door. It's welcoming, loving, and caring. God, that the broken and the brokenhearted would find this place to be a place of refuge among these people. And God, build our marriages for your glory and your purposes. Father, may they be part of the abundant life that you promised to us. comfort those who don't have that right now but who long for it do a miracle over and over again in the lives of the hurting thank you for speaking to us in your word for giving us instruction and the authority upon which to rest our lives we pray these things in Jesus name Well, we can uh, leave this place as a place of prayer. And if you need further prayer, our leaders are up here at the front and you're welcome to remain in the room here. This weekend coming, of course, is our Easter weekend. And so these invitations are gonna be handed out at the door, they're available. Again, take these invitations, get them into people's hands, get them here for Easter weekend uh, to enjoy uh, the glories of our resurrected Savior. God bless you. You are loved. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.